It's time now for the complete story with Dick Bott, a public news and information feature of Bot Radio Network to keep you informed about the most important issues of our day. Now, here is Dick Bott with today's complete story. Well, I tell you what, folks, I don't know if this is the most important story, but it, it is tending to linger. That is the abortion story, the Roe versus Wade overturned by the Supreme Court. By the way, please understand, folks, what the Supreme Court said. We will turn it back to the people and let the people of the states decide. Uh, we are a country of we the people. And the Supreme Court said we should have never been involved with this anyway um, because it had nothing to do with the Constitution. And so going back to the people, that's what it is. And that's where we are now. So we're going to just kind of discuss this. And I ask everyone listening, please, please consider this is not an argument. This is not a debate. Just consider what you don't hear on the media, what you do not hear from the raging crowds and even even trying to swarm the residents of the Supreme Court justices because they are so angry. Now, Thomas Jefferson said these words, in matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. And you know, folks, that's where the pro-life people, uh, they are standing like a rock, and they have been, because what else can they do when they really believe science? Increasingly, the science is so clear, and they honestly believe that life matters to all parties. And so anyway, I want you to hear this testimony from a woman. Turn your radio up now, and I'm telling you, this is stark. She was in a mess. She had really, obviously, represented so many people that are marching and storming and hollering and screaming today. Listen to what she had to say. There are a lot of people that struggle with um, getting over the sin of abortion. I've heard a lot of people say in their life, you know, I can't forgive myself for this sin of abortion, and that is true. If you could forgive yourself, you wouldn't need Jesus. That's why Jesus came, to forgive us. Um, I have a history with abortion that started at the age of 16. I became pregnant um, at the age of 16, and my father took me for my first abortion. Um, abortion had just become legal, and so when I got pregnant at 16, I didn't even think about having an abortion. I actually wanted to place my baby for adoption. I knew that I was too young to be a mother, but I never even considered abortion until my father suggested and my boyfriend suggested that I get an abortion. And since it had just become legal, my father took me at age 16 for my first abortion. And at the time, I remember thinking, well, it's not a baby. It's just, you know, a pregnancy. That, you know, we've just stopped the pregnancy. Um, I got married at 18. I got pregnant before I got married, and I wanted my baby, and I had her. I have a daughter. Her name is Shelly, and she's 35 now. And then I wanted to have another baby, and I ended up having a miscarriage. I got pregnant again, and I had another little girl, 
and she's now 31 and her name is Angela. And after six years of marriage, I got divorced. And when I divorced, I had a, an 18 month old and a four and a half year old. And I remained single for seven years. And during that time, I was very promiscuous. And at about age 28, I got pregnant again. And I knew that I was a single mom, and I, it was all I could do to afford these two girls, and I knew that I couldn't afford another baby. So I went and I had another abortion at 28. And again, thinking all along that it wasn't a baby, it was just a pregnancy that I was terminating. I got pregnant again when I was about 30, and at this time I had just gotten married, but the pregnancy was not planned. It happened before I got married, and I didn't want the baby. My first marriage started out with me being pregnant when I got married, and my second marriage started out with me being pregnant. So I had my third abortion. And then I had my youngest daughter, Tinley, who's now 21. I ended up getting divorced again. And it was when I got divorced at that time that my middle daughter led me to the Lord at age 42. She had become a believer in Christ in the fifth grade when she went to camp with a friend. Uh, and in the fifth grade, she came back and she was all happy because she had been to camp and she was full of joy and I didn't understand her joy. And I said, you know, why are you so happy? And she said, well, I just asked Jesus to come into my heart. I'm saved. And I said, well, I don't understand what that means. And are you going to talk about Jesus all summer? And, you know, I can remember now looking at her face and seeing how disappointed she was because in the fifth grade, she knew at that point that her mother wasn't saved. So the, the second divorce devastated everyone in my family. And it was through that devastation that God reached down through all of that hurt and that pain and called me out. And my uh, middle daughter had a church praying for me for two years that I would come to know the Lord. And I did at age 42. And at age 42, when I read the Bible for the first time, and I read the passage that I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb, I fully understood what I had done. That I'd taken the life of three of my children. They weren't choices, they weren't just pregnancy, they were my children. And I remember when I read that passage and I fell to my knees, I was weeping and I just yelled it out. I said, God, forgive me, please God, forgive me. I, took the life of my kids and he said, I know, I was there. I've just been waiting on you. The peace that came over me, the peace that came over me, I mean, I would pray that anybody that's suffering from abortion could understand and feel the peace that I do. And anyone that's been forgiven through Christ, they understand. Uh, do you get that, folks? Christ came to forgive not to beat somebody up, uh, not to judge, but to forgive, and then say, go thy way and sin no more, or to forgive again. But I want people to understand that with the percentage and with the number of people, even in the churches and elsewhere, for goodness sakes, it has become, abortion has become, in the last 50 years, a cultural 
understanding, uh, and everybody's doing it. It is so pervasive. Now we have 60 million babies that are lost. What does God say about that? If we don't wake up, use the science, use the scripture, use common sense, and for goodness sake, don't listen to what the media is saying because they're using the English language very poorly, very poorly. It's not a choice. It's a baby. It's not a choice. It's the life of an innocent human being. Now, some years ago, Congressman Henry Hyde was the congressman from Illinois, and he brought a speech to the House of Representatives uh, about this subject. Here it is. I ask unanimous consent to revise and extend my remarks. Without objection. And I also beg the indulgence of my colleagues not to ask me to yield because I cannot and will not, and I would appreciate the courtesy. I also want to say briefly that those who have charged us with politics, invidious politics, for delaying this ought to understand that Americans can't believe this practice exists. And it has taken months to educate the American people. And it'll take many more months to educate them as to the nature and extent of this horrible practice. That is one reason it has taken so long. Now, the law exists to protect the weak from the strong. That's why we're here. Mr. Speaker, in his classic novel, Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky has his murderous protagonist, Raskolnikov, say, man can get used to anything, the beast. That we're even debating this issue, that we have to argue about the legality of an abortionist plunging a pair of scissors into the back of the tiny neck of a little child whose trunk arms and legs have already been delivered and then suctioning out his brains only confirms Dostoevsky's harsh truth. We were told in committee by an attending nurse that the little arms and legs stop flailing and suddenly stiffen as the scissors is plunged in. People who say, I feel your pain, aren't referring to that little infant. What kind of people have we become that this procedure is even a matter for debate? Can't we draw the line at torture? and baby torture at that, if we can't, what's become of us? We're all incensed about ethnic cleansing. What about infant cleansing? There's no argument here about when human life begins. The child who's destroyed is unmistakably alive, unmistakably human, and unmistakably brutally destroyed. The justification for abortion has always been the claim that a woman can do with her own body what she will. Well, if you still believe that this four-fifths delivered little baby is a part of the woman's body, then I'm afraid your ignorance is invincible. I finally figured out why supporters of abortion on demand fight this infanticide ban tooth and claw. Because for the first time since Roe v. Wade, the focus is on the baby. Not the mother, not the woman, but the baby. And the harm that abortion inflicts on an unborn child, or in this instance, a four-fifths born child. That child, whom the advocates of abortion on demand have done everything in their power to make us ignore, to dehumanize, is as much a bearer of human rights as any member of this house. To deny those rights 
is more than a betrayal of a powerless individual. It betrays the central promise of America that there is in this land justice for all. The supporters of abortion on demand have exercised an amazing capacity for self-deception by detaching themselves from any sympathy whatsoever for the unborn child, and in doing so, they separate themselves from the instinct for justice that gave birth to this country. There's no moral, nor for that matter, medical justification for this barbaric assault on a partially born infant. Dr. Pamela Smith, Director of Medical Education in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Chicago's Mount Sinai Hospital, testified to that, as have many other doctors. C. Everett Koop, Dr. C. Everett Koop, the last credible Surgeon General that we had, was interviewed by the American Medical Association. In so doing, he cited several cases in which women were told these procedures were necessary to preserve their health and their ability to have future pregnancies. How would you characterize the claims being made in favor of the medical need for this procedure? Quoting Dr. Koop, question, in your practice as a pediatric surgeon, have you ever treated children with any of the disabilities cited in this debate? Have you operated on children born with organs outside of their bodies? Answer, oh yes indeed. I've done that many times. The prognosis is good. There are two common ways that children are born with organs outside of their body. One is an omphalocele, where the organs are out but still contained in the sac composed of the tissues of the umbilical cord. I have been repairing these since 1946. The other is when the sac is ruptured. That makes it a little more difficult. I don't know what the national mortality would be, but certainly more than half of those babies survive after surgery. Every once in a while you have other peculiar things such as the chest being wide open and the heart being outside the body. And I have even replaced hearts back in the body and had children grow to adulthood. Question, and live normal lives? Answer, living normal lives. In fact, the first child I ever did with a huge omphalocele, much bigger than her head, went on to develop well and become the head nurse in my intensive care unit many years later. The abortionist who is a principal perpetrator of these atrocities, Dr. Martin Haskell, has conceded that at least 80% of the partial birth abortions he performs are entirely elective. 80% are elective. And he admits to over a thousand of these abortions, and that's some years ago. We're told about some extreme cases of malformed babies as though life is only for the privileged, the planned, and the perfect. Dr. James McMahon, the late Dr. James McMahon, listed nine such abortions he performed because the baby had a cleft lip. Many other physicians who care both about the mother and the unborn child have made it clear this is never a medical necessity, but it is a convenience for the abortionist. It's a convenience for those who choose to abort late in pregnancy when it becomes difficult to dismember the unborn child in the womb. If there is one consistent commitment that has su survived the twists and the turns of policy during this administration, it is an unshakable commitment to a legal regime of abortion on demand. Nothing is or will be done to make abortion rare. 
No legislative or regulatory act will be allowed to impede the most permissive abortion license in the democratic world. In his memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower wrote about the loss of 1.2 million lives in World War II. And he said the loss of lives that might have otherwise been creatively lived scars the mind of the civilized world. Mr. Speaker, our souls have been scarred by one and a half million abortions every year in this country. Our souls have so much scar tissue, there isn't room for any more. And say, what do we mean by human dignity if we subject innocent children to brutal execution when they're almost born? We all hope and pray for death with dignity. Tell me what's dignified about a death caused by having a scissor stabbed into your neck so your brains can be sucked out. We've had long and bitter debates in this house about assault weapons. Those scissors and that suction machine are assault weapons worse than any AK-47. You might miss with an AK-47. The doctor never misses with his assault weapon, I can assure you. It isn't just the babies that are dying for the lethal sin of being unwanted or being handicapped or malformed. We are dying, and not from the darkness, but from the cold. The coldness of self-brutalization that chills our sensibilities, deadens our conscience, and allows us to think of this unspeakable act as an act of compassion. If you vote to uphold this veto, if you vote to maintain the legality of a procedure that is revolting even to the most hardened heart, then please don't ever use the word compassion again. A word about anesthesia. Advocates of abortions tried to tell us the baby doesn't feel pain. The mother's anesthesia is transmitted to the baby. We took testimony from five of the country's top anesthesiologists, and they said this is impossible. That result would take so much anesthesia, it would kill the mother. By upholding this tragic veto, you join the network of complicity in supporting what is essentially a crime against humanity. For that little almost born infant struggling to live is a member of the human family. Abortion is a lethal assault against the very idea of human rights and destroys, along with a defenseless little baby, the moral foundation of our democracy. Because democracy isn't, after all, a mere process. It assigns fundamental rights and values to each human being, the first of which is the inalienable right to life. One of the great errors of Modern politics is our foolish attempt to separate our private consciences from our public acts, and it can't be done. At the end of the 20th century is the crowning achievement of our democracy to treat the weak, the powerless, the unwanted as things to be disposed of. If so, we haven't elevated justice. We've disgraced it. This isn't a debate about sectarian religious doctrine nor about policy options. This is a debate about our understanding of human dignity. What does it mean to be human? Our moment in history is marked by a mortal conflict between a culture of death and a culture of life. And today, here and now, we must choose sides. I'm not the least embarrassed to say that I believe one day each of us will be called upon to render an account for what we've done and maybe more importantly, what we failed to do in our lifetime. And while I believe in a merciful God, I believe in a just God. And I would be terrified at the thought of having to explain at the final judgment why I stood unmoved while Herod's slaughter 
of the innocence was being reenacted here in my own country. This debate has been about an unspeakable horror. And while the details are graphic and grisly, it has been helpful for all of us to recognize the full brutality of what goes on in America's abortuaries day in and day out, week after week, year after year. We're not talking about abstractions here. We're talking about life and death at their most elemental, and we ought to face the truth of what we oppose or support, stripped of all euphemisms. And the queen of all euphemisms is choice, as though you're choosing vanilla and chocolate instead of a dead baby or a live baby. Now, we've talked so much about the grotesque. Permit me a word about beauty. We all have our own images of the beautiful, the face of a loved one, a dawn, a sunset, the evening star. I believe nothing in this world of wonders is more beautiful than the innocence of a child. Do you know what a child is? She's an opportunity for love, and a handicapped child is an even greater opportunity for love. Mr. Speaker, we risk our souls, we risk our humanity when we trifle with that innocence or demean it or brutalize it. We need more caring and less killing. Let the innocence of the unborn have the last word in this debate. Let their innocence appeal to what President Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Let our votes prove Raskolnikov is wrong. There is something we will never get used to. Make it clear once again, there is justice for all, even for the tiniest, most defenseless in this our land. Oh, folks, I can almost hear everyone saying amen when amen. That was Congressman Henry Hyde on the floor of the House of Representatives. And he spoke with clarity and passion, and, uh, and he was right. Um, now, this isn't an argument, folks. This isn't even a debate. I just implore you to set everything aside and think. If we would pause and think, we wouldn't be swept aside by the whirlwind of cultural change over time. Now, years ago, a young woman uh, by the name of Jill Stenick. She was a nurse. She was a new nurse uh, in a hospital outside of Chicago called Christ Hospital. Can you imagine? And as a new nurse, she didn't know that they did abortions. Uh, she, was, she was completely out of it. And uh, this is what she had to tell me years ago. Here it is. Thanks for having me, Mr. Bott. And you're absolutely right. I was a registered nurse at Christ Hospital on the southwest side of Chicago when I discovered the hospital was not only involved in late-term abortions, but that the method of abortion that the hospital used sometimes resulted in babies being aborted alive. And if they were aborted alive, they were allowed to die in the soiled utility room without any medical intervention whatsoever. So let's let's just stop there then. And this is the case where they intentionally intended to kill the kid. And they right. failed and they failed. And they failed. The child lived anyway. The child was alive anyway. There is the child alive and well. And not well, but is surviving uh, the attempt on its life. And and so this is the scene uh, that you're describing, and you were a nurse in that hospital. Yes, and 
went to work there thinking I would be safe at a hospital named Christ from abortion because who would think? But I found out that this was going on, and then one night a nursing co-worker was taking a little abortion survivor to the soiled utility room because his parents didn't want to hold him, and she didn't have time to hold him that night. And he was a 21-week baby and when she told me what she was doing, I couldn't bear the thought of this suffering child dying alone. And so I cradled and rocked him for the 45 minutes that he lived. Now, this is a, a hospital, Christ Hospital, for goodness sakes. Is that associated with a particular church or denomination? or what Yes, is it? it's affiliated with two denominations, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America and the United Church of Christ, which are both pro-abortion denominations, which is something I didn't even know existed. Um, that a pro-abortion church nomination uh, back in the day, but now I know that it's it's relatively prevalent. So you were a young nurse in that in that ward, in that hospital, in that department, and so on and so forth. You probably heard whispers. You probably heard little little statements or something that you didn't quite understand or know about. Is it, am I describing this approximately the way it was? Well, actually, it was going on quietly in the, in the labor and delivery department since 1978, and I worked in the department for a year and didn't know that it was going on all around me until one night I heard a report that we were aborting a second trimester baby, and that one also had Down syndrome, and that was the first that I heard about it. And even when the story went eventually public, um, nurses in the next department, the neonatal unit, didn't believe it. They didn't know it was going on either. So it was very hush-hush. Well, somebody had to know what was going on, and the truth is what you're describing is happening across America, and no more so than Planned Parenthood that that, are, that is being supported by people's tax money. But go on. In other words, this is your bar mitzvah, as it were. This was your awakening as to what it was all about. Right. I'd been personally pro-life before that time, but needless to say, I think just about anybody who held an abortion survivor, like I did for 45 minutes, would be instantly converted into a pro-life activist. And I was. And so uh, I had first tried to appeal to the hospital privately to stop and followed the mandate of Matthew 18, when Jesus, you know, when you find someone in sin, you approach them privately took back a couple of witnesses again privately, such as um, Cardinal Francis George of Chicago and Dr. C. Everett Koop, who was a pro-life surgeon general under President Reagan. He also appealed to the hospital. And when the hospital wouldn't stop, um, I went public. And this was in 1999, and I probably started talking to you not too long after that. Folks, there you have it. It goes around and around and around, uh, and we have to wake up and face it and then take our stand in our churches, uh, wherever we are. Know what you believe and then stand for it. Very quickly, remember what Thomas Jefferson said, in matters of style, swim with the current, but in matters of principle, stand like a rock. This is Dick Bott with his chapter, The Complete Story, as a public service for you folks. See you later. <laughs> 